good morning, everybody. How are you today? Awesome. I'm Tim. I'm going to do this part of the service, and uh, we're going to jump right in. A question for you. What's the best gift that you've ever had? You don't all need to shout it out. Maybe you can close your eyes and think about it. Maybe you're already thinking about the best gift that you've ever been given. Well, what is the best gift that you have ever been given? I'm going to tell you one of mine. It's really hard. I have a top 10 list. I don't really. Um, I'm going to tell you one of mine. Um, I received my first guitar on Christmas in my eighth grade year. I was 13. I was about to turn 14 because I have a January birthday. It's, it's enough distance from Christmas that I don't get gypped on gifts, but it's still pretty close, so, you know. Um, but uh, I received my first, uh, my first guitar, and uh, while you may think that that's the, the best gift, I'm, I'm going to elaborate on uh, a less tangible gift, that that gift is an expression of. When I was a little kid, uh, my dad would put a record on. Yes, when I was little, there were still records. Eventually, it was CDs. I can't go all the way back to eight tracks. I am young. I'm just... (laughs) My dad would put a record on, close the thing. He'd plug a quarter-inch cord with the coil, and he would bring a pair of headphones to his recliner, that was, if you were like coming in our front door, it would be on the right side, but if you're facing where the stereo system was, it was on the left, kind of angled. And my dad would sit down, and he'd put his headphones on, and he'd take the little lever on his recliner and sit back and close his eyes and listen. Now, when I saw this, I was like, my dad's having a good time right now. But you didn't just see what my dad was doing. Because on the record player was this thick volume knob. And he'd make sure to crank it. So even though he had over-the-ear headphones, you could hear what was coming out of the headphones. And I, as a little kid, I just wanted to emulate my dad in that moment. I was like, that looks fun. And so it was always a real joy to me when I would, I would be, so we had a couch on the other side of the room and I would lay down with my head on the armrest. I, get, I don't get yelled at. I get told I should probably not put so much weight on the armrest, but still to this day, I lean too much on the armrest with my head. I, one of our couches is probably going to break because of it. But anyway, I would lean back on my head on the headrest and my dad would fix up, put on a record, put the headphones over my little five-year-old head. They were too big. They almost covered my face. So they covered my ears completely, but they had to also rest on the headrest along with my head so they didn't just fall off. And he would turn that dial up. And I don't know that he did it as high as he did for himself, but I'm pretty sure you could still hear the music from outside of the headphones. Now, a favorite of mine was Def Leppard's Hysteria. Who doesn't 
you know, just nod their head to pour some sugar on me anyway. <laughs> yes, I was an MTV kid. And so I would be listening to that, and I just, I loved listening to music, and I wanted to emulate what my dad was doing. And then as I was growing up, I can remember uh, rides in the truck, whether we were going to run an errand or we were going down to South Carolina annually for vacation. And we'd be in the truck, and my dad would throw on the Eagles Hotel California, and he would crank the music with the windows down, and I can still sing verbatim most of the lyrics on that album to this day because of listening to that as a kid. I grew up and I was given the gift of a love for music. And that ended up turning into a a thing that I would kind of uh, enjoy doing. It was an escape for me. When I was a teenager and I got into middle school, I was living, uh, I was living in the basement. That's a little bit of a, my room was in the basement. And so I would turn my music on really loud. And one of my favorite things to do would be to get the the uh, hockey stick that we never used for hockey. Because it doubled as an air guitar and a microphone. And I would crank my music up and I would belt it out and pretend to play guitar because at the time I didn't know how to play guitar. The thing is, is sometimes when you're a teenager, and teenagers you should know this, what you think you're doing in private is not always in private. Somehow that's a good rule for life to remember. Because little did I know that my parents saw me air guitaring and air singing with the hockey stick. And so when I was 13 that Christmas, I got my first guitar. And so that first year I took lessons, and then I got some friends together and we started playing music. And so as I was a teenager growing up through high school, I loved listening to new music and sharing it with other people. Any music that I liked, I had to go show someone else this, this band that I heard or, or whatever it is, and I, I loved to play music. Um, my parents were kind enough, even though I you know, turned into a teenager like everybody else and probably liked music that they didn't like, but they'd still play it in the car when I was in there so that I could listen to my music with them. And eventually, I started sharing my talent for music. I started playing out with my band and eventually started using my talent in church. So I ask again, what's the best gift that you've ever been given? And the reason is not because I want you to sit and think about the best gift that you've ever been given, but I want you to think about what you do with a gift that you're given. Because I think that for most of us, when we receive something good, we want to share it with the world. Right? I mean, let me give you an example. If Hannah Ridenauer brings in food into the office, everybody's talking about it for weeks on end because it's really, really, really good. Sorry, I just saw you. I'm just going to point it out. We had, at my, at my previous church, we had a lady that would bring in peanut brittle. We called it Christmas crack because you needed to share it with everybody. 
Now, I get it. With food, you may actually be inclined to try to keep it for yourself. You're like, I don't want anybody to know about this so I can have more for myself. But I think most of the time, it's like you get that, that cookie, that sandwich, that name it, and you think, I've got to go tell somebody about this. The first person to try it always becomes the greatest evangelist for whatever food item it is, and everybody within striking distance knows that it exists and it's shared with them. Think about the greatest gift. Maybe it's a tangible material item. Maybe it's food. Maybe it's somebody's presence or company. Maybe somebody did something or said something or gave you time that was meaningful and you went and you either told people about it or maybe you emulated it. What's the best gift you've ever been given? And when you think of it, what did you do with it? See, we've been going through this series in the book of Exodus. And the story of the Exodus at its core is about God remembering his promise to a people a people that he intends to keep his promises with. But they've ended up in a not-too-ideal situation. They're enslaved by the world power of the day. And they are crying out. And God hears their cries. And he gets the most unlikely person to go help them get out. And not only is the most unlikely person uh, unlikely for all the reasons he tries to excuse himself getting out of the situation, he's also proves to not be the best candidate because he doesn't want to do the thing. And he ends up having to have his brother help and all this weird stuff happens along the way. But eventually he relents and he goes. And God tells Moses and Aaron from the get-go that Pharaoh, the Egyptian king, is not going to relent. He's going to have to be broken down before he lets his people And so as Nick just eloquently said last week, God unleashes these ten plagues. And I loved the point that he made because when you look at the plagues, uh, each one of them can correlate to God showing his power and might over and against the idols and gods of the day. And of course, the last God to be dealt with is the Egyptian king himself, Pharaoh. He won't relent. He's gone from plagues 10 through 2, and he hasn't budged. And so God releases the final one. And the final plague is the destruction of the firstborn in Egypt. All the firstborn, children and animals, will perish unless they put the mark on the doorposts that God told his people to do so that the angel of death passes over. And oftentimes we see those stories, and especially even in context of Exodus, because Pharaoh goes and tries to kill all the male children, and so we think about firstborn and we think about children, but that's firstborn throughout the culture. So it's Adult first children and adult animals, it it is the destruction of that which in a lot of ways, both emotionally, fiscally, societally, is most precious 
to the Egyptian people. It is literally the breaking of the world power to get them to relent. And they had their opportunities, and Pharaoh didn't take them. And so God does this final plague, and the people are freed. But God also knows that that relenting is not going to last long. Pharaoh is going to change his mind. And so God devises a strategy to not only free the people through a very particular and miraculous path, but to also thwart the pursuit by the Egyptians. And you may be thinking, well, we're going to look at the story of the party in the sea today, but we're going to look just before it today. <laughs> because it's what God tells the Israelites, both after he has spared their firstborn and destroyed the firstborn of Egypt, and before he takes them through the sea. That is where we want to camp today. And it's in Exodus chapter 13. It's from verses 1 through 16. And we want to read this and uh, sit with it for a little bit. Starting at verse 1, it says, The Lord said to Moses, Dedicate to me all your oldest children. Each first offspring from any Israelite womb belongs to me, whether human or animal. Moses said to the people, Remember this day, which is the day that you came out of Egypt, out of the place you were slaves, because the Lord acted with power to bring you out of there. No leavened bread may be eaten. Today, in the month of Abib, you are going to leave. The Lord will bring you to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. It is the land that the Lord promised your ancestors to give you, a land full of milk and honey. You should perform this ritual in this month. You must eat unleavened bread for seven days. The seventh day is a festival to the Lord. Only unleavened bread should be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread and no yeast should be seen among you in your whole country. You should explain to your child on that day, it's because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. It will be a sign on your hand and a reminder on your forehead so that you will often discuss the Lord's instruction for the Lord brought you out of Egypt with great power. So you should follow this regulation at its appointed time every year. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites and gives it to you as promised to you and your ancestors, you should set aside for the Lord whatever comes out of, your, out of the womb first. All of the first males born to your, uh, to your animal belong to the Lord, but every first male donkey you should ransom with a sheep. If you don't ransom it, you must break its neck. You should ransom every oldest male among your children." When in the future your child asks you, what does this mean? You should answer, the Lord brought us with great power out of Egypt, out of the place we were slaves. When Pharaoh refused to let us go, the Lord killed all of the oldest offspring in the land of Egypt, from the oldest sons to the oldest male animals. That is why I offer to the Lord as a sacrifice every male that first comes out of the womb. But I ransom my oldest sons. It will be a sign on your hand and a symbol on your forehead that the Lord brought us out of Egypt with great power. 
So God basically has Moses deliver a little sermon, and it's a very practical and action-oriented sermon that he gives the people. He's telling them to do two things in light of what he has just done and what he is about to do. They are in the in-between. They've been freed from Pharaoh, but they have not escaped him. That's about the change. But before they go, they're told that their freedom isn't free. You see, here's the thing. When you look at what God has done in dismantling and showing his power, but dismantling the other gods, including the Pharaoh God, with his might, he's also showing his people that they ought to worship him as the true God. I've heard it said that everybody serves somebody. And in this world, there were plenty of gods to choose from, but only one worth worshiping. And it's the one leading the people out of Egypt, conquering the world power of the day. And so in this message, he says two things. One, he tells the people that they, for seven days during this month of Abib, which if you look at our modern calendar of January, February, March, April, and so on, uh, it's right there in that March to April springtime that this month lands on. And he basically tells the people, for seven days during this month, you are to eat only unleavened bread. Now, you may be asking why. If you don't know the story, I'll tell you why. Because in the hurry of the situation of bringing the people out of captivity, it says in the story, or it notes, that the people are in, in such a hurry to get out of Dodge that their bread hasn't fully risen. So they end up having to take with them bread that hasn't fully gone through the process of rising and baking and all of that stuff. So they're forced to eat bread that is unleavened. And so God is attaching here a memory device for the people. Every year at this time, you will partake in eating this unleavened bread to remember the situation out of which God has brought you. Then he goes further, and he brings up the firstborn, the firstborn sons and the firstborn male animals. And the reason for this is because God had the firstborn of Egypt killed in order to get Pharaoh to relent. And it gets even better because in this world where there are many gods and many sacrificial systems, some of which do some really ghastly stuff when it comes to sacrifice, as in like people, God says, you must offer up your firstborn. But he says, I'm going to ransom them. They're not going to be offered up for killing. They're going to be offered up for service. Why? Because while God smote the firstborn of Egypt, he will ransom the firstborn of the Israelites. And yet the people 
are required now, based off of this little sermon from Moses, to restrict in terms of the food that they eat, and they are required to give back to God what was given to them when they earned their freedom from captivity. And they're told to give what is most precious to them, what is most valuable to them, what makes the whole world go. See, in this world, the firstborn was a big deal, especially the firstborn male sons. The inheritance, the family business all went to them. But they are to be dedicated to God. So I ask again, what's the best gift that you've ever received? And what did you do with it? See, we live in a world, I believe, where we have a tendency to focus on what we don't have, who we're not, where we lack, where we're deficient. And we have good reason for that. We are sinful. We are depraved because of our sin. And so in a lot of ways, we do lack. We lack the ability of our own might to do as God calls us to do, to be who God calls us to be because we've deviated from Him. But that's not how God made us. And yet we have a tendency to focus on who we're not and what we don't have. And the world around us that we participate in, that we look at through our screens, big and small, that we look at around us when we play the comparison game, it is easy to see all of the messages all the time that we don't measure up that we don't have like they have, that we don't bring to the table what they bring, that we're not talented the way that they are. We are really good at thinking and speaking to our lack of time, talent, and treasure. But the reality is, is that if we stop for a moment to think, maybe even just to think, What's the greatest gift I've ever received? We actually break that cycle. See, what God's doing in this story is He's giving a commandment to a newly freed people to worship the one true God on His terms and to no longer be bound and put into service by a false God on His terms. And trust me, the true God's terms much better than the terms of Pharaoh. He will make you add more bricks to your quota and take more resources from you and provide more beatings. But the one true God will give you freedom. Which one would you rather serve? But of course... He is God. 
And while he has already enacted the rescue plan, he has not finished it when he makes this pact. When he tells this to the people through Moses, that they are to do this in remembrance of what he has done and what he is doing. And that's why what I want us to remember today, what is most important for us to remember, is that we reflect what God has given us when we give back to him. And I want us to think about this word, reflect. We oftentimes see this phrase in plenty of sermons, what God has given, we should give back. What God has given, we should get back. And we don't think about the story that's being told by what we give. The story that's being told by what we give is a reflection of what we have been given. When I was a kid, and I saw my dad in the recliner with his headphones on, with the music cranked, all I wanted to do was sit and emulate my dad in the moment and listen as he was listening to this thing that put a smile on his face. And it did the trick. I loved it. So much so that I wanted to give it to everybody else. I wanted them to enjoy what I enjoyed. And that ended up happening with that particular thing. But it's not the only thing in my life that I've been given that I've had that attitude about. And I think if you're honest, all of you have probably, if you thought about your greatest gift, have thought the same way. You've had something in your life that you had to tell the world about, that you had to share, that you wanted to change the world with. When I share music with people, it is a reflection of the music love that was given to me by my dad when I was a little kid. When I share my faith with other people, it is a reflection of the faith that God instilled in me. When you share a favorite food, it was passed down recipe after recipe, generation after generation with somebody else. It is a reflection of what was given to you. And when the Israelites gave of their firstborn back to the God that rescued them, it was a reflection of this reality that while the Pharaoh king put them under the yoke of slavery, God redeemed us. Where God smote the Egyptian firstborn, He redeems ours. Every time we give as He required and as He commanded, we reflect our reality with God. Now, I don't know about any of you here. Were any of you around during the Exodus? I'm just kidding. This isn't your story, but the God behind it is your God. He is the same 
then as he is now. And every time we give back to him and we share with others our time, our talent, and our treasure, we reflect what God has given to us. There is a powerful story to be told in our generosity toward others and back to God. And can you imagine, can you imagine what can be done if instead of always thinking about what we don't have and who we're not, we started thinking about what God has done, who He's made us, what He's pulled us out of, what He's given us to share, and we started giving it back to Him in all of the different ways that we are called to do and all of the different ways that we are given an opportunity to do. It would change the world. And that's kind of the funny thing about this whole church deal. Is that's kind of the goal from the get-go. See, this story may not be our story, but the God behind it is still our God. And that God also, in the New Testament, sends His Son, Jesus, to die on a cross for our sins, releasing us from the bondage of sin and death, and making us a way to have abundant life, and in the long run after death to be able to spend eternity with Him. We've been given so much. And every time we give back to God for what He has given us, we reflect that story in our lives. And so this week, as we continue to ponder the Exodus story and the consistency of God, and not only that, but the story God commanded His people to continue to share, not just by telling a story, but by what they gave. I encourage us, too, to consider our time, our talent, and our treasure, and what we have to give, and what story is reflected when we do. We have no idea, no idea, what can be changed when we give as God calls us to give. It started in this story with the firstborn. It becomes a story of first fruits. It becomes a story of tithing. It becomes a story of sharing the gospel message. It becomes a story of making disciples. That's what it begins, and it starts back here. And it's not because God wants to shame you and take your money from you or to make you feel like you're less than. It's because there's a story of His grace reflected in what we give out and what we give away every single time. And here's the best part. A lot of us might think, well, I don't even know if 
I have anything to give and I don't know if what I give is enough. I don't know if, I don't know if that conversation I had was good enough. I don't know if this gift was good enough. I don't know if that word of encouragement was good enough. I don't know if my talent is good enough. Here's the thing. What God can do with what you give goes so far beyond measure that you would be blown away with what God can grow from the seeds that you plant and that you water. And we're not called to know what God is going to do with it. We're just called to do it. Hopefully when you came in, you took a communion packet. The thing that I love about what God does for his people is he doesn't set up a situation where he tells us to give first and then we'll get later. He says, I'm going to call you to a new life and I'm going to make the first move. He made the move to free the Israelite slaves to make them a free people. And he made the first move with his son Jesus on the cross. You know, one of the things I love about communion is, is that uh, when Paul talks about communion and why we take it, he actually adds that we proclaim the good news every time we are obedient to when Jesus said to take and eat the bread and drink of the cup. There's something about when we obey the commands of God that tells a story. <laughs> and we get to tell a story amongst ourselves to make us remember the story every time we take communion. Every time we remember that Jesus gave of his body and that his blood was poured out. If you think you have nothing to give, here's a start. If you believe, in a moment, we will take communion together. And then what you give back to God and to others can roll off from there. So I invite you to take a moment to ponder what God has done for us through His Son, Jesus. That He has freed us not just from a temporary state of oppression, but from eternal death and damnation and gave us abundant life through Jesus. And that is something worth sharing.
I invite you to take and eat of this bread. This is his body, which is given for us. And I invite you to take and drink from this cup. This is his blood, which is poured out for us. Please join me in prayer. Dear Lord God, we thank you for this morning that we can ponder your word, the wonderful story of the freedom of your people from slavery, and the fact that you are a God of redemption and restoration and renewal. That you don't just free us, but you free us for purpose. That you give us so much that you invite us to spill over to those around us so that your story can be told. And more than that, so your story can be felt, experienced, and lived. And so God, I pray that you will help us as we continue to reflect on not only the story, but your call in this story. That rather than focusing on what we lack and who we seem to fail to measure up to, that you will remind us of how much you've given us because of how valuable we are, that we do have so much to give, and that you will inspire us to give it. Not just out of some sense of obligation, but as an opportunity to reflect your story and to be a light to the world around us. We pray these things in your son Jesus' name. Amen.